1: Let's go back to 1996. You know, Seinfeld, Friends, The Simpsons were still good. And the World Wide Web was the Wow Wow West. There were still great fortunes to be made and a lot of freedom, maybe too much. Congress was very worried about one thing. That's Jared Schroeder. He's a professor at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, SMU. He studies free expression and emerging technologies. There's a famous Time magazine cover, and it's got the words in big letters, cyber porn. This new thing, the World Wide Web, was open and free. For the first time, nearly everyone had knowledge at their fingertips and the freedom to connect with people all over the world. But that freedom also meant easy access to obscene and indecent content to anyone with internet access, including children.
2: The very same stuff I try to keep my kids from not seeing today,
1: right, 25 years later. Congress's solution? The Communication Decency Act, or CDA, which passed in 1996. One of the goals of the law was to keep children from watching sexually explicit content on the web. The law was meant to try to limit
2: the ability of children to have access to indecent and obscene content. If something is obscene, it is not protected by the First Amendment, and the government can regulate it all it wants. But if it's indecent but not obscene, the government generally cannot regulate it. It is protected by the First Amendment. So putting indecent limitations on indecent content into the law kind of triggered
1: a First Amendment problem So, the American Civil Liberties Union quickly sued the government in the case Reno versus ACLU. The main argument was that censorship provisions in the Communications Decency Act were unconstitutional because they criminalized expression protected by the First Amendment. The ACLU argued that terms like indecency were too vague. The ACLU then did something unusual for the time they created a website where they posted, quote, indecent unquote, content, including the comedian George Carlin's famous seven words you can't say on TV.
2: There are words that you can say, no problem. Topography! No one has ever gone to jail for screaming topography. But there are some words that you can go to jail for. There are some words that we just have decided we will not say all the time. Then in
1: 1997, the Supreme Court heard the case and ruled in favor of the ACLU, Not only did the ACLU win, but the Supreme Court went further than simply striking down the Communications Decency Act.
2: They made Reno into the first decision where the Supreme Court identified what the internet is, how they understand it. When they
1: looked at the internet, they said, this is something really special. To the justices, the internet represented something that was extremely important to democracy. Accessibility. They looked at the internet and they said, this is a new life, a new world, a new period for democracy. My, how things have changed. Has democracy really flourished? Or has the internet become so unruly that it needs to be reined in? Today on the show, the groundbreaking case that gave us the internet we have today and what's next for it. I'm Sonari Glenton, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary. And this is What Next? TBD a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around.
0: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day.
1: What is this thing? And can we and should we regulate it? The first conflicts came trying to figure out what type of protection online speech should get. Should it be like print media, which has a lot of protections for free speech, or should it be more like broadcast regulation where the Federal Communications Commission determines what can and what can't be said on public airwaves? How did the courts see the internet different from... the the established medias like radio and TV?
2: They had the option of going with one of two models. There's almost like a fork in the road here. They could have gone with the types of protection that have traditionally been extended to like newspapers and political speech and that sort of thing. Or they could go down the broadcast regulation route. The government argued it should be like radio, that the internet was like radio The reason why broadcast has been regulated in a different way than all other media is because of the unique nature of broadcast. It is on the public airwaves, and those airwaves are shared. It's almost like a national park, right? The government cares for the space, the broadcast, the public airwaves, and then we license holders use it. And because the FCC had to be created to manage the license holders and to manage this shared limited resource the government got involved. And because of that, the Supreme Court has ruled that the government can limit indecent content on the public airwaves. The government wanted that. They, they used the precedent from that case to say, look, do this in Reno too. And the Supreme Court was not buying and they went the other direction. What would the internet look like if this law hadn't have been struck down? Basically, we would not have an internet we have today. It would be a very... It'd be a very limited, rudimentary version of what we experience. We'd probably still be in a 1990s type internet. It would not be profitable. It would not be a good idea to go into business doing um, doing what Facebook or what Meta does or what, what, you know, Google's ownership of YouTube does. It just, it wouldn't work. The government could just step in. What makes something indecent? It's just not terribly clear. And the wording in the law was not terribly clear. And so, would the you know, would a president, would an administ- presidential administration be like? We think your comments about our administration are indecent. Let's we're gonna we're gonna shut this down. We're gonna limit this. Like it would give the power to limit all kinds, the government, the power to get into that open space that the internet created, this virtual open space, and start picking winners and losers, start affecting what ideas can go through and which ones don't. Reno has said no, hands off, government. Generally, almost all the time, hands off. You can't, you can't get involved.
1: Now, when the CDA was written, lawmakers were afraid of how huge the Internet would get. I don't know of a teenager who hasn't seen something genuinely obscene on the Internet. Could there have been an in-between?
2: I mean, that's part of the problem. And it's one of the reasons I think the Supreme Court was so definitive in what they said is, how do you have an in-between law That gives the government power to limit some expression, but not others, because it's like the door, it's like the door is either open or not. If it just blocked obscenity, for instance, if they dropped indecency, well, that wouldn't protect that, wouldn't stop very much of what they were trying to stop because
1: most of the content they were concerned about was indecent but not obscene. So what has Reno versus ACLU done to shape how we know it today? I mean, is this where I can place the blame? Huh.
2: I don't think you can blame Reno on this. Um, it's 25 years old, and it's not just the years. If you think about how quickly the technology has changed in those 25 years, it's almost different than any other era uh, of of time. If you think about how media have evolved, it it's moved so much faster. I remember, and I'm not you know terribly old. I remember life without the internet, right? Like. It's been so fast, such a quick development. Reno has aged quite a bit in the facts of the case because it really was a very different internet back then. No Wi-Fi, no mobile devices or smartphones, no social media. But at the same time, over those 25 years, it has remained a very relevant tool when it comes to saying, we have a lot of problems here, but government intervention in those problems is not on the table as a solution to those problems. So it kind of sets the boundaries for what, like, for the discussion, right? Like, these are the ground rules. Like, when you open a new board game, you're like, okay, how does this game work? If you open up the ground rules for the game called How Do We Regulate the Internet? And you open up the box and you take out the directions to figure out how to play the game, the first line of directions is Reno versus ACLU says the government
1: cannot intervene. You know, I wonder, how is the the progress of technology in, you know, that, 30-year space, give or take, changed speech on the internet? I would, just to expand your question,
2: like, how has it changed democracy? The internet has changed the way we understand the world because it has changed our information sources. So we used to share, generally, you know, ish, a newspaper and a couple of broadcast reports uh, of what was going on. Everybody pretty much shared a basic set of facts. And then we disagreed or had opinions about those facts. Now, because of the internet is such a big space, we can have separate realities that exist alongside each other. And that's a really big difference for democracy. The Supreme Court got it wrong in the sense that the internet is not exactly a big open space, right? It's like when I go on the internet, I don't, I feel like they picture just a giant marketplace of ideas, like a giant cobblestone European marketplace of epic proportion, which was romanticized, too. But really, it's not like that, right? If you go into the Internet, if it were a physical structure, you don't walk into a giant open space. You walk into a heavily divided space with just tons of rooms and dividers. And where are those dividers coming from? Well, they're coming from algorithms that are placing us in, encouraging us toward people like us making us more likely to only encounter ideas that reinforce us. This is the echo chamber concept, right? And no one ever became more open-minded when they only encountered ideas that agree with them. There's only one real direction you can go when you only encounter ideas that make you feel like you're right all the time, and that's to be more extreme, not less extreme.
1: If you're doom scrolling or encountering fake news or scams, being harassed by trolls or being doxxed, you feel like the internet is the Wild West with no one in charge. And I'm wondering, is it time to rethink that nobody in charge?
2: It is a Wild West, but there are controllers. It's just they're not government controllers. It is Mark Zuckerberg and and Meta, right? It's it's, uh, Google and YouTube. It's whoever's going to own Twitter, you know, it, it's, they're the space managers of these spaces, right? And it creates a whole new problem or a whole new challenge because democratic discourse no longer occurs in public spaces like a, you know, a uh, like a marketplace of ideas, like a a public park or something like that or public streets where you would hold a, a protest. It happens in a privately owned space. Since the January 6th uh, riot there have been quite a bit of changes by those types of controllers. I do think we could agree that there's been a more active role, whether it's been effective, whether it's been um, authentic. I, I mean, and, and you know, there has been more control by social media firms since the January 6th uh, riot than there were before. The other option is okay. It's time to get some control over this thing. Who do we trust to control it? Right? Do we? We could say, well, you know, Biden's president, we think he's going to be great. But then the next administration or the previous, like, it's going to change. We don't want an internet that our free speech changes every two years or every four years with each election cycle either, right? And so Reno, as a strong precedent for 25 years and however long it lasts, remains a strong statement that, look, it doesn't matter who president is, who's in Congress, the internet is going to be protected from the government stepping in and saying you you can't say this or you know this this content's
1: not okay you said that january 6th brought more order to the internet how so
2: it it led to social media firms being more aggressive in how they police their spaces right we we have seen them become more strident in blocking speakers and groups um We've seen them clarify their policies and execute more. I don't have a Facebook account, uh, but my wife does. And she has noticed that Facebook has been blocking more things than it probably should. The AI that they've set up is blocking things that probably are not a problem. Like they've become just more aggressive in, in trying to limit... Uh, speech that's harassing speech, things that a lot of people would say are problems on the internet, harassing speech, hate speech, extreme speech. Ever since uh, January 6th, there's been, but I'm not saying they fixed it, right? It's been inconsistent. It's been, uh, there's a lot of experimentation going on. There's not like a, a, a textbook or a rule book on how to do this yet. And I don't think that the, the social media firms are all, they're keeping their business interests in mind, which I don't want to sound like that's a, a, like they shouldn't be, but they're not all genuinely trying to create a great space for democratic discourse. That's part of the problem is you have a group of corporations that are, and I'm not, I, that's their nature. A corporation's job is to make money in many ways, but they, they are
1: not in the business of creating a perfect space for democratic discourse. What's the future of Reno given the invocations of the fallout of January 6th, et cetera? Okay, so Reno is a very strong precedent.
2: It's almost a unanimous decision. And so it's it's really been very strong. It's been cited in over a thousand state and federal court cases in the past 25 years. So about 40 times a year, courts have said, why have we made this reasoning? Reno versus ACLU. And the Supreme Court itself has cited it on average once a term, um, once a year, which you might be like, well, it's just once, but like how many. Cases are relevant to online free speech every term, like one or two. I mean, so it's, it's basically the case.
1: But with a very different makeup and a conservative majority in the Supreme Court, Jared says that could change. But there is some
2: pessimism that Reno will not persist as a strong precedent. I think it's very unlikely the Supreme Court will just say, oh, hell no, and just destroy it. Right, I think it's more likely that it will die in pieces. Um, the concern is that we have the Supreme Court is a. I hate to break it to anybody who doesn't hasn't thought about this, but the Supreme Court is a political institution. Sometimes they are very careful and they do the whole Wizard of Oz thing and the high behind the curtain. They're not in that phase right now, right? They clearly are a very political institution right now, and so the concern is that Reno will be harmed by this. If they overturn Reno, they're they're saying no to a lot more than just Reno, but they're saying no to fundamental First Amendment principles about free expression. But there is some concern that the court will chip away at it, um, that they'll say, oh, yeah, it doesn't apply to this, or they'll allow lower court decisions that are clearly clearly in conflict with the Reno decision uh, to stand. They won't hear the case. They'll just leave it alone and let it stand. Um, that's the concern that the future of Reno is one that it would be kind of chipped away at, um, that it'd become weaker over the years. And I mean, I'm saying that's a bad thing. It's possible
1: some of the folks listening will say, you know, it's about damn time. Let's fix this. As I look back at the internet changing in the past between, you know, 25 years since Reno, there are all kinds of new technologies that are out there that we may not have thought about, like virtual reality. What are the effects of Reno on virtual reality? And are people trying to rein in obscenity in something that's fast-growing like the metaverse?
2: The moment where we stop visiting the internet and we start living in the internet, um, we start living in virtual worlds, the very problems we're having already that people say we should fix this, something should be done about this, the metaverse poses the challenge, like makes multiplies those challenges, right? So. It's not just that we have bots taking part in human discourse in ways that we, you know, spreading falsity, having, you know, the agendas that were programmed into them. It's not just that we have them like we do in Twitter or anywhere else that bots are powerful. Um, it's that the the bot turns into a someone that looks like a real person in the metaverse, that when they're telling you this, they look believable. When they tell you this, they... They look like someone, and when you tell them you don't believe them, it looks like it hurts. Like the metaverse makes this you know real more real. Uh, it makes it makes the falsities more believable because they look like they're being delivered by real people, versus you know in an immersive sense too. Versus opening up Twitter and being like, "Is this a bot?" I don't know. All the challenges we have now should be multiplied by the metaverse, but Reno remains the directions to the board game saying, if you want to fix these problems, the one thing you cannot do is to have the government the power to say what ideas are okay and what ideas are not.
1: It looks like we're going to be dealing with the ramifications of this decision for a very long time.
2: Reno is just the extension of a long set of First Amendment decisions, right? It's the the case that took the First Amendment as the court has understood it and put it in the internet. It's the bridge from the main line of free expression precedence. It's the bridge from that to the internet, right? It's the case that says, okay, these things apply to the internet. And so if you're like, oh, let's just get rid of Reno, well, you're also going to have to break all these other things that were behind it. As soon as we think we figure part of something out, we get a new technology or a new innovation like, like the metaverse. But we'll definitely be dealing with these questions for a very long
1: time. Jared Schroeder, Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was so interesting. It's just wonderful to talk about it. Jared Schroeder studies free expression and emerging technologies at SMU. That's it for the show today. TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Tori Bosch. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next? Alicia Montgomery is vice president for audio at Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also a part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. I'm Sonarion Glinton filling in for Lizzie O'Leary. Thank you for listening.